Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. Very excited to have two students back uh, to talk a little bit about motivational interviewing. Let's start off with uh, minor introductions. All right. Dave? My name is Dave. I'm a third year medical student at Brocky Vista University. Good to have you back, Dave. And I appreciate you uh, kind of standing in last minute. That's uh, very kind of you. And then uh, start of the show, major contributor, so to speak. Christian. Uh, yeah, I'm Christian Smith. I'm a medical student, third year as well at Rocky Vista. Um, and my interest is uh, family med, is what I'm working towards. How did you come up with this topic on motivational interviewing? So when we first started this rotation, you gave us some materials to look at because motivational interviewing is an important part of, of uh, working with psychiatric patients. Uh, and I watched a few videos that you gave us and I thought there was a lot of really good information in them, but I thought that it was difficult to follow. Um, and so as I was just trying to think of an idea, that was something that I felt like I could maybe expound on and at the same time simplify this topic. So the goal on your part for this podcast is what? To make it easy for a medical student to apply it without having to think too much about it. <laughs> All right, so you're not going to be able to do that. Yeah, <laughs> but that's my goal. Um, <laughs> we'll and I think stars. it's a great goal. I think the only way to do that is to hear the, the items in the podcast and then practice it ruthlessly. Yeah. Right. Normally what we start off with is kind of a description of the medication, a description of the uh, medical condition, the mental health condition, and then we kind of talk about some uh, questions that come up on the shelf exam, principles that are tested. In this case, I'd like to, if we could, have Dave read the spirit of motivational interviewing kind of as a backdrop, and then let's talk about the shelf exam questions that come up to get the high-yield stuff kind of right up front, and then we'll dive into what it means to have motivational interviewing. What do you think? Sure. All right. So the spirit of motivational interviewing is what? So it involves three key elements, collaboration between the therapist and the client, evoking or drawing out the client's ideas about change, and emphasizing the autonomy of the client or yeah. patient. And that, I think a lot of people that will listen to this podcast will say, well, you want people to change. That's why you're evoking the change. And to be a therapist and sit in the back, to be a physician and sit in the background and... and be able to talk to patients about things they already know, right? That's a key phrase. The patients already know the things that we tend to lecture them about. And allowing the patient to have autonomy to come to that decision is, is a big part of this. And I think that's so important. Um, let's talk about those high-yield questions, Christian. Okay, so um, these are just a couple of UWorld questions that I came across. Principles you found in UWorld questions, you mean? Yes. Um, the first one was that... I needed to know that the stages of change, it's important to work with your patients through them rather than uh, force them to change depend no matter where they're at. So it's a good idea to know what the stages of change are and recognize that some patients are ready to change and others aren't. And maybe we'll talk more about that later, or do you want to? Let's go, go ahead and do that. Okay. So the stages of change, um, I kind of tend to think of this as just how ready is the patient. Uh, 
classically we divide it up into six stages which are pre-contemplation contemplation preparation action maintenance and then possible relapse um, but the way i think of it more is just are they thinking about this as a problem are they wanting to do something about it and are they actually doing something about it and you know maybe that's just a different framework to think about it but each of those uh, stages it's like like for example contemplation they're thinking about it but they're not wanting to change whereas in preparation which is the third one they're wanting to change but they're not doing anything and then in action they are doing something but it's not under control and so that's a good way to think about it so I just run over those very quickly pre-contemplation not thinking about it contemplation thinking about it preparation getting ready to change but not changing yet action doing something about it maintenance still doing something about it and then relapse it fell back and now the patient is going to fall in one of those five steps now I'm never going to do it again I'm not contemplating change right mm -hmm. or hey I want to get back on the wagon so to speak and get moving I think there's one other thing that you pointed out in our discussion prior and I, I want to make sure I understood this correctly the stages of change are not the same as motivational interviewing. Motivational interviewing may help you or may help you evoke change talk so that a patient considers taking uh, a step from maybe pre-contemplative thinking to contemplation about change. Does that sound right? Exactly, yes. Okay. And speaking of change talk, that's actually the other thing that I saw a question about in New World. And it basically comes down to when you're working with patients, you need to hone in on the things that they are saying that, that they know it's important to change, that they want to change, that they think they can, because that's the sign that they're ready to make some improvement. And so the question I saw basically was... The principle you saw... <laughs> <laughs> Do we not talk about the actual question? I think that might be proprietary. Okay. So I worry about stepping on toes, and, and to be honest, I don't think you have exactly related the question, so we want to make sure that we don't okay. step Fair on enough. any toes. Uh, but when a patient indicates some willingness to change, you should hone in on that is the concept. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think one of the things that's very difficult for for physicians, and when I speak about physicians, I speak about me. I'm tapping my chest here for those of you that can't see. Um, I would hone in on the reasons why somebody wasn't changing and creating a dialogue about why aren't you changing? Well, stop it, right? And that's not very helpful. It's, in fact, it's just the exact opposite of change talk, right? So let's talk a little bit about what motivational interviewing is used for. Or the, the principle that was tested before I move on, the idea is develop change talk. Is that correct? In the conversations yeah. that you have? Notice it and then focus, focus your on. questions on that. I think that when I, when I thought about motivational interviewing, when I left medical school, I understood it as, hey, guess what? You got to change. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you, you're smoking. It's time to stop because it's really bad for you, right? And, and all I could really understand was the... Um, tobacco aspect of that, right? Tobacco is dangerous for you here. Let me tell you how bad that is. Patients already know that. 
what we're doing is something very different. We're going to talk about that a little bit in, in a moment. So I just mentioned uh, tobacco, but there's actually a lot of things that we saw articles published about regarding uh, motivational interviewing. Do you want to tell us about some of the things you saw? Yeah, like medication adherence is a common one that we'll deal with in a psychiatric setting um, or just attending to their daily activities of living or going to their classes. Uh, those are some of the psychiatric things and we saw articles that related to some of those um, and then of course like uh, weight loss is a common one. We saw a few articles about that. I think gambling there was an article or two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Waking up on time, you have listed here. I didn't see that one, but uh, interesting. Maybe I could be motivationally interviewed to wake <laughs> up on time and not make you guys wait when I'm doing morning rounds. Um, substance use, sleep hygiene, really almost anything. Right. Now, we didn't do this, and we probably should have. Uh, the total number of articles that you could find on PubMed speaking to motivational interviewing, I think, is in the hundreds of thousands. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the quality of those articles in a few minutes. But this is a topic that's been applied to a lot of areas. Yeah. And so if you're ever having a, a difficult time with helping a patient make change in almost any area in medicine, my guess is there's an article that speaks to that. I mean, name the topic, right? Likely so, yeah. All right, so uh, let's just review the key points, and then let's talk a little bit about the principles of motivational interviewing. So key points you have for, um, for motivational interviewing, and you're going to hear these come up again, and you probably heard them in the spirit of motivational interviewing in part, but I want you to review those because I do think they're important. Okay, yeah, and, and these are really more just a way that I looked at this whole topic and summarized it down into what should you really be focusing on. Um, so the first one is kind of more a mentality and that's that you should be compassionate when you're talking to these patients. You should be non-judgmental and you should be seeking to collaborate with them rather than forcing your ideas onto them or accusing them or demanding that they change. Yeah, I, th I think it's very easy for physicians who aren't listened to immediately to become forceful, right? And I, I often think about picking up a rope and immediately getting in a tug of war with my patients, right? So mm -hmm. the, the goal of motivational interviewing, it, when I was learning it more effectively the second and admittedly third time around, uh, we had Dr. David Wood work with us, the image that helped me most was the idea of dropping the other end of the rope. Right. If, if I'm in an argument with somebody, drop the other end of the rope and walk away from the argument and figure out how you can re-engage in a way that's helpful, find the common ground, Right. collaborate. So it's such a big deal. Yeah, and that's really a super key point of this whole thing is that we're not, we don't want to argue. And that we'll talk about that more, and that kind of leads right into the next one, which is that if you're constantly telling a patient to do something, it's frequent that they will want to kind of do the opposite as weird as that sounds like that's just sort of human nature right and i kind of think doesn't happen with medical students <laughs> <laughs> no never but the way i i think about it and kind of have referred to it in my head is just patients will dig in their heels if you're telling them to stop doing something they're going to dig in their heels um yeah and we'll talk more about arguing later maybe but next okay so uh this is kind of what you're already saying but Patients need to decide for themselves that they want to change. 
our role isn't to convince them to change. That's a key point of motivational interviewing. I like the next point that you pulled up too. Yeah, and it goes pretty similarly to that, which is that we need to help patients see how their behavior is affecting them specifically and personally, and not just how it might affect people in general. And I like the example of if you have someone who needs to lose weight and uh, you tell them, you know, there's this heart disease. If you don't lose weight, you're going to have it. It's this nefarious thing out there that doesn't seem personal to them because it doesn't apply to them right then and now. Whereas if you say, well, look at how that weight is making it so you can't take care of your own child. It's affecting your ability to play with them or something like that. That's can personal. I, can I even take it one step further? One of the key components of um, motivational interviewing from my perspective is that we need to understand that our patients already know the answers much more than we realize, right? If, sure. if you've ever talked to anybody that is diagnosed with diabetes, they already know most of the things they need to do, right? They already know. Our, our patients know the answers to these things. And so it's, it's not about telling a patient anything it's about exploring what the patient knows and the patient's already, uh, they're, they're already growing understanding. So with the weight gain, I would probably throw it out just a little bit differently. And by the way, my, my way is not necessarily the right way. I would just say this is a, a, another way of thinking about this. Use that open-ended. Tell me how your weight gain has affected your relationship with your children. Tell me what worries you have about weight gain and health. And your patient will then make it personal. Yeah, They'll make it personal to them. But the way to know what's personal to the patient is not necessarily by guessing, right, but by letting them tell you, and they'll tell you their worries at the same time with that. Yeah, and I think that that's important, and maybe I phrased it wrong, but uh, the way that we're trying to evoke this thought in them, rather. Right, right. Rather than rather telling, them, than they telling yeah. them that. Yeah. yeah, I think that's important to point out. Uh, next point that you have here. Uh, and this is an important one, and we kind of already mentioned it, but our goal is not to get them immediately to change. I mean, that's what we want eventually, but rather if we focus on moving them through the st stages of change, then they're more likely to... It's more likely to be effective, I guess. If, if we recognize this person isn't even thinking about it as an issue, then we start with helping them see it as an issue rather than start telling them, here's what you need to change. I like that. So if we're having a motivational interviewing discussion, um, let's suppose that uh, I'm trying to quit smoking tobacco. This is the classic mm -hmm. example, right? Um, I come in and I say to you something along the lines of, hey, I, I know I need to quit, but it's really hard. How do you respond to that? Well, um, I would, well, I don't know. I, I would personally use the techniques in the ORs, which we'll get to. Uh -huh. um, do you want to go into that now? or? Um, I was actually thinking that, I, I mean, we these principles, right, you can express empathy to that. Rather than jump on it and say, I've been telling you this for years, right? right? You're yeah. going to kill yourself. You're going to have a heart attack. You already have you know, X, Y, and Z, right? So, so empathy, I think, is a big deal. Um, 
Yeah. And then I think the other thing that's really challenging, after you say, man, I, I get that, you want to change, you know the benefits, but you're still smoking, right? So that's the called the discrepancy in the behavior, right? Right, yeah. And then you got to hone in on that change talk. Just like we're, we're looking at this from a million miles away, right? Well, Doc, I, I want to change. I, I haven't yet, but I want to, however that comes. And then go from there. So in a way, I think we've kind of tackled that section already, haven't we? We have, yeah. Yeah, you're looking at me like, what are you talking about? Let's go to oars. <laughs> All right, so let's go to the oars. Tell me about oars. Okay, so if I had to pick one thing that a medical student would remember from this discussion, it would be this. If you're faced with a patient and you say, oh, I need to do some motivational interviewing on this patient, what should I do? Remember oars. And the rest of it is, you know, a mentality. Try and employ that, of course. But, but this is where you start. And ORS stands for open-ended questions, affirmations, reflective listening, and summaries. And we can spend a lot of time on each of these topics. But um, so do you want to just start on open-ended questions and d dive into that? or Tell me what you know about open-ended questions. Okay. <laughs> this this really is the heart of a conversation I think in motivational interviewing this is how you get the conversation going it's how you elicit that change talk that we were talking about and it's what you do in response to change talk so for example you were saying someone says I know I should but it's hard then you can ask them well what do you know about why you should stop right. smoking? As opposed to, why is it hard? Right? Well, why is it hard opens up keep the behavior talk called sustained talk. And what's the reasons for changing opens up change talk. I, I would actually counter that to say that from the research I've done, uh, it's important to actually talk about the things that... The barriers. Yeah, that keeps them wanting to come back to their behavior. So I think it's still, I think you still work on change talk with regards to the behavior or the barriers. The way you set up the question is important. So let me, let me throw out, um, these, these open-ended questions are phenomenal, not just in the setting of, of uh, patient, uh, physician interactions, but I would say they're also pretty important in any kind of relationship that you have. Right. If you go home and you say, uh, did you have a good day to your wife? And she's going to say yes or no. If you go home and say, did you have a good day to your husband? He's going to say, uh. <laughs> if you go home and say, tell me about your day. That's a very different question, right? Yeah. Now, now there's, there gets to be a little bit more nuance in this, though. So if you think about how you ask questions that elicit change talk, you want to make sure that you're asking a question in a way that talks about the thoughts that somebody already has about overcoming the barriers. For example, if you have somebody that has a lot of hesitancy about change, you can ask this really interesting question that catches me every time. How, how interested are you in uh, stopping smoking? You know, um, Dave, let's pretend that you're the person I'm interviewing. 
Uh, give me kind of a number, anywhere between 0% and 100%. Uh, a three. 3%. So not, you, you haven't, you're not really, you, you're kind of not really thinking about change. No, not really. So that's a reflective question, or a reflective statement back, right? In a sense, it's a clarifying question. And now watch this. Well, why isn't it 0%? Well, I, I guess smoking's pretty bad for you. Boom, right? You can take somebody who is almost not thinking about change, and you can set up a situation that still elicits or evokes content that people have considered about changing. And I think that's one of the most clever questions ever. As opposed to, wait a minute, 97%, don't you know how bad it is? Well, <laughs> of course people know how bad it is, right? And instead, when you can focus on that 3%, that's still the part that gives you the toehold to change, right? That's still the part you want to focus on to build. Um, so open-ended questions about the barriers, I think, are very reasonable. So uh, let's see, Dave, you you have some barriers to stopping smoking. Uh, I think you told me that you enjoy going to the bar, and at the bar where you sometimes have a drink, and it's where you have your friends, you have your social time. Um, you'd probably have to give up smoking and you probably have to give up going to the bar and lose your friends. Yeah. Yeah. How, how would you tackle that? Um, I don't know. That would be really tough because my friends are usually there. Yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd have to find a way to meet my friends somewhere else. I don't know that it's always quite that easy. Yeah. But surprisingly enough, it's not that hard either because I don't think you were trying to evade the question, but you're honestly going at the heart of the question, which is, man, that's really tough for me. Boy, that does sound tough. What kinds of things have you considered to kind of fill in that relationship or to maintain that relationship if you did give it up, right? So, so I'm not trying to plant ideas in your mind. I'm trying to see if you've had any, and if you have, tell me about them. Right? So I'm focusing in on those things that you've probably already considered or that you're kind of aware of in the back of your mind. And those open-ended questions are so valuable as long as you're pointing to the change talk instead of to the sustain the maladaptive behavior talk. Does that sound about right? Yeah. That's okay. good. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I actually have come across that same response, the why is it not zero and... I think that's awesome. <laughs> Isn't that a clever yeah. thing to say? I mean, it's because it's, I mean, everybody knows the 97%. Man, those cigarettes feel good when you're smoking them, right? And this thing that's not personal way down the road, like you talked about a few minutes ago, doesn't have the same importance to me, the same valence to me, right? What else do we need to know about open-ended questions? You've got a couple of examples of those. Yeah, should we go through some examples? Yeah, that'd be great. So, um... Say, for example, you have a patient who's earlier in the, in the stages, stages of change. Um, you can open up the conversation a little bit more with, like, what difficulties have you had with this? Have you ever, or have you ever made any attempts to stop? And if so, what difficulties have you had with it? Um, and you could start them thinking about how it's impacting their life by saying, how would it stop you from doing the things you want to do if you continue this behavior? Now, I don't want to get 
too carried away with every question has to be open-ended, right? I think yeah. I think there's actually a matrix. You can find this at the end of the uh, Miller and Rolnick book where they talk about some ratios. My recollection is that you want about one open-ended question for every closed-ended question you have. So, so hmm. the first question you had is, have you ever tried stopping before? Gives you information to start working with, right? If somebody's still smoking and you know that they've tried to stop, tell me what motivated you to stop. Gives you an open-ended question. You're jumping right into the things that helped the person get started last time. What barriers did you run into? Have you thought about how you'd overcome them this time, right? Um, I, I think there's a lot of ways to use those yes-no questions to set the stage. I'm sorry, for yes, yes-no questions to set the stage for the open-ended questions as well. Yeah, I think that's good advice. To not be, not feel like you have to be totally locked into this concept. But yeah, it's not every question. And yeah. even the even the Miller and Rolnick book didn't have it be every other, every question. I, sorry, I think I interrupted you too. No, this. Um, you have um, some questions about opening up the conversation, and and then I think you also mentioned you can ask open-ended questions about where somebody wants to go, right? And and one of the things that we've done in um, at the state hospital on our unit is this opens up the idea of goals and what goals can you achieve with the change, right? Yeah. And I think I think when you tell people, stop doing this, you're always much less effective than how can you get to where you want to be and how can I help you get there, right? Goals are always more powerful than telling somebody to stop. If I tell my uh, two-year-old um, son, this has been a number of years, right? <laughs> stop doing that, it just doesn't work. If I say, hey, come here, let's watch The Lion King, it tells you how long ago it was my son was too. <laughs> that works, right? I have to find a goal that replaces the behavior or something that is where I'm going towards. And I really yeah. like that as an open-ended question as well. And I think it comes back to the concept we talked about earlier that patients need to decide for themselves how they're going to approach this. Uh, and you telling them, I mean, if a patient's really ready to change and they say, tell me, doc, what do I need to do to stop smoking? That's a different story, right? But if we're trying to elicit that change and they're just starting to think about it, then you can say something like, well, what's the next step for you? What do you need to do? And I'm going to even say that when somebody says, tell me what I need to do next, there's still a lot of room for sorting out what's been effective and not effective in the past and using some yeah. open and closed end questions with that. Um, but it is different, right? Because we're at a different stage in the stages of change. Exactly. And so we're not necessarily talking about change talk to give up cigarettes, perhaps. We're talking about change talk to overcome the barriers that got in the way of giving that, right? Exactly. So, so I, think it, it, I think you're right, though. It, it changes where the conversation is quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So far, I think you've done a great job. I want you to tell me about affirmations as the next step in this. Okay. <laughs> did, that, did that work? Yeah, that worked. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I mean, every, you know what the word affirmation means, but I, I almost like to think of it as acknowledging. That works better in my mind for some reason. Uh, so that's both for the positives and the negatives. If a patient did well, you especially want to hone in on that and say, good job. I can, like, say they're thinking about wanting to stop. It's good that you're thinking about the impacts this has on your health. Uh, but if they're struggling, then you can also acknowledge that. I know that this is really hard for you to deal with. Um, and it can be other things too, like they're talented at something, you can acknowledge that. And it's a way to show that you're really there for them, I think, and that you're invested in them. 
But one interesting thing I saw in one video is that if you don't, if you're not sincere, if you're just acknowledging something for the sake of acknowledging it, patients will see that. So you have to actually acknowledge something that's real and actually there. It, I would say that's accurate for every single principle in this too, right? Yeah. Not, not just acknowledging those things, you can't fluff acknowledgements, but I think every bit of this, the reason it does work is because it's all very real, right? Yeah. I, I think that's just a, a, an incredible point. One of the things that I think is also interesting, and, and uh, this is again my perspective, I've been amazed at the one place I can pick up that rope for a tug of war is when I say, man, it is pretty tough, isn't it? And then all of a sudden my patient is saying, well, it's not that tough. <laughs> I, I can do it. And I say, yeah. Right, right, which isn't a yes or no question as much as it is, I, I'm, I'm listening, <clears throat> right? And I, and I love that tug of war that I get into when my patients are in a tug of war with me about how tough it is to change, and they're trying to tell me, well, it's not that tough. I, I can change, so there. And I love that. <laughs> That's um, cool. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Um, so what I'm hearing you say is, ORS, open-ended questions. You can have that along the line in a couple of different ways. I'm hearing you say, acknowledge the patients. It's not just affirming the things that they're saying that you agree with. It's acknowledging, and in a sense, I think it's a form of active listening. Yeah. And the third point that you have, the third key point is what? That's uh, reflecting, reflective listening. And the way I think about this is basically just stating back what you've heard. It's not a question. It's saying back what they told you. And there's a lot of different ways to do this. Um, we can go into some of those specifics, but basically a patient is telling you something and you state it back to them that shows that you have been listening and it gives you a way to kind of help them see what they're saying. So for example, you can do just kind of a simple reflection you know, if someone's uh, talking about how it's hard for them to lose weight, you might say something like, so what I'm hearing is it's difficult for you to think of changing your eating habits because you're surrounded by people who don't eat in the way that I'm suggesting you eat. That would just be a simple statement back. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about how it helps them see a little bit what they're saying, maybe they didn't even acknowledge it. Another way to approach it is something called an amplified reflection, which is where you kind of exaggerate it a little bit. And so maybe a patient's smoking and they, it seems like they don't have any problem, but their house smells like smoke all the time and they're coughing all the time and their wife is badgering them about it. And they say, I don't see why she's so mad. You could say something like, so it seems to you, your wife has no reason to worry about you. And so you're <laughs> stating back, that my, I don't understand why my wife is worried about me, but you're kind of exaggerating it. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's also, there's a couple of different kinds of reflections. I think there's complex reflections, simple mm -hmm. reflections. I don't know that the scope of this discussion has to include those, but, but I think everybody has to find the way they reflect. For me, it wasn't, I, I didn't feel right saying, what I think I hear you saying right, is, yeah. right? That felt so mechanical for me and that's just, not my personality, so to me it's a little bit more like, so it doesn't work for you. you. You don't want any of this, right? And that might be my reflection back. It's not the word for word, 
but you can either kind of word for word it back or have an interpretation which is more of a complex. How do you know if you've reflected back correctly? I don't know. What is your thought on that? <laughs> so according You're the to, master here. Oh, jeez. I'm not the master of this. I, I wish we had Dr. Wood here with us on this podcast. He's pretty amazing. Um, so for me, the patient will tell you, no, no, that's not what I said. Or, mm. yeah, that's what I said. And it kind of hurts your feelings a few times when you get it wrong if your ego's involved in this, right? If all you really care about is helping a patient find a pathway to living a more healthy life that they're already considering in most cases, don't let your ego get in the way. Right? I think that's the answer. So I kind of want to go back, if it's okay, yeah. to this idea of the positives of their behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and Maybe you'll disagree with me on this, but, but it seems like there's this concept of patients are going to dig in their heels if you tell them what to do. Yeah. And so sometimes what you can do is tell them, well, here's all the good things about what you're doing. And they'll dig in their heels on that and say, well, no, that's not that good. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like the it's too hard that you, you get the tug of war at the right, right. time. Exactly. You're flipping roles. And I, like I said, I think that thinking about the rope is just such a valuable way of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. What about a double-sided reflection? And, and that's kind of what I wanted to lead into is that that's kind of my favorite way to do it, I think, mm -hmm. is you say, okay, here's all the reasons you want to do it, but here's also why you're thinking you shouldn't. And that kind of gives that way to say, okay, well, there are these positive things. And, and so they're starting to say, well, no, no, that doesn't, that's not actually that. And then you say, but you're also saying that you want to change. So like, say for example, the example I had written down is that on one hand, you felt that smoking helped you cope with your disappointing news. But at the same time, you noticed you were coughing again and your wife wasn't happy about that. Um, so it's kind of doing addressing the positives and addressing the negatives in one statement. Personally, that, that resonates with me. I don't know about you. I think when I started, that was what I liked most. And then I think the more I did it, I think the more I began to probably reflect back variably. I think after this podcast, I'll probably do more double-sided reflection. I think this is a good reminder for me. Okay. How's that? Well, yeah. I'll be curious to see how, it, how you think it goes. It sounds like something a lot of our patients already use, which is pros and cons. Yeah. In fact, that's a great, a great way of thinking about it is pros and cons are a, a double-sided reflection on change. Wow, I'd never thought about that before. By the way, we're having an aha moment here on Mike. <laughs> uh, confrontation. Now, confrontation isn't telling somebody what to do. Confrontation is what? So this kind of goes under reflection because there's not really a better place to put it. But it's not so much a reflection of what they just said, but it's more calling out the patient. So this obviously has to be used tactfully. Um, but sometimes patients just don't recognize that they're being completely irrational about something. Or unaware, maybe. Or, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a better way to put it. Um, so say, for example, you have a patient who is uh, saying, yeah, I know I'm overweight, but 
I don't really think I have a problem. You could say, well, you have a BMI of 40. And that's just quickly saying, well, obviously you have a problem. And so I don't know, that's something that I feel like you have to get good at using. I don't know if I would feel comfortable just jumping out of the gate and com confronting patients like that. Have you ever tried? So, so we're gonna talk about this in just a moment. Maybe we're gonna skip it if we have the conversation about it right here. Quite often I'll ask per patients for permission to do something. I don't know if you've heard me do that before. Yeah. But I'll say something along the lines of uh, Dave, by the way, Dave is not a patient. Dave is my medical student, just to be clear. Dave, would it be okay if I ask a really difficult question? Sure. Okay, so so Dave, I'm aware that smoking will destroy your lungs. I'm aware that you've lit a fire in your apartment falling asleep smoking in a no-smoking apartment. You've been homeless. And I'm also aware that you're not quite ready to stop smoking. And that probably is getting in the way of you having a life outside of the hospital. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's just, I can't really see my life without cigarettes. Um, Pretty honest discussion, right? But I think that's a, I think that's a, a reasonable call out, right? It's a reasonable, this is the facts around the situation, and it seems like it's getting in the way of the goals you have. It, I, I think over time I've become more persuaded by the idea of having people reach for a goal rather than run away from a bad. So I might say, if I were you know, using this confrontational me mechanism, I'd probably say something very different. I'd start the discussion off with a conversation about where do you want to be? How does the BMI get in the way of that? Um, the BMI of 40, what could you do when you were 200 pounds less? And what are your thoughts about living that life again? Um, and, and if there's still nothing there, I might not keep going until I get the answer I want because that might be an autonomy issue, but I might give it some time and go back and say, you know, we had a conversation last time you were here about your weight. I asked you if it was affecting your life and if it was getting in the way of you being where you wanted to be in the future. Um, I gave you some information about the health concerns I had. Tell me what your thoughts are about that conversation about what I gave you. I think, I think that's a, a little bit different way of confrontation. And I think, I, I think it's grown out of my nature more. I'm sure I do it um, probably when I'm frustrated and I'm not at my best. And when I'm not frustrated, I'm usually at my best and usually don't use that technique. Yeah, and I think that's valid. And, and like you said, it sounds like there's some other types, like you can get into semantics here, you know, simple reflections or complex reflections. and. And this is just one technique that might work well for some people, I think. But but yeah, the key I, that's is... That's a great point. For some people, yeah. 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 Like every technique. For some people, it's magic in their hands. Yeah. Every technique for a different person. Yeah. Anyway, I interrupted. I, I think really the key here is, though, that you're stating back what the patient is saying and using that as a tool to help them kind of see where they're going. In summary, then... Or I think this is actually not in summary for the process of motivational interviewing. I think this is... This is the fourth step. Fourth step. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, so the S in ORS is summaries. And, and honestly, actually, a lot of people talk about this in conjunction with, with reflection. Uh, depending on where you look, they'll say, you know, you've got open-ended questions, affirmations, and then reflective listening and summaries. But some people see it as separate, and really all I'll say is that instead of stating directly back to them, it can be a little bit more of, okay, so we've talked about these things, now I'd like to go here. It's a good way to transition the conversation, or it's a good way to link back to something you talked about earlier. You even gave an example just a bit ago. I heard you say something like this last time we met that reminds, or you just said something that reminds me of what we just said. You can use things like that. Um, but yeah, it's pretty similar to the reflection, and sometimes you might use it in place of a, of a reflection, I think. You know, here's all the things you're saying, but the main difference is I see it as a way to transition the conversation. I, I like that. I'm not sure I have a good enough grasp, so, so again, I, um, I've had a couple of day seminars. I've had, uh, really, if you want to get better at motivational interviewing, have a psychology intern sit in the room while you're interviewing patients and mark down every time you uh, do a type of comment, right? And at the end of each hour of interviewing, check in, and you'll think, and I, I would think, ah, yeah, there we go, I've got like almost all open-ended questions. How did I do? You had one open-ended question, 47 yes-no questions, <laughs> and you had one summary statement, no reflections of any type. And there's that moment of silence. <laughs> and then you work at it again, and you work at it again, and you work at it again. So, so I, even though I've had the lectures I've tried to read, I've, gone, I've, I've watched a presentation by Dr. Uh, Miller. Uh, by the way, he's just such a wonderful, warm person to listen to. And I would still say that I struggle with actively implementing these all the time, and the only way to do it is to do it consciously and then periodically have somebody grade you on it. Yeah, that's and, cool. And my ability to know the subtle differences between the summaries and the reflections, I think, is limited. I wish we had Corey here to help us with that because I think he would give us a little more clarity. Yeah. So we're going to talk about this a little bit more in a few minutes, but I think we were a little bit um, unhappy with the research we found regarding the benefit of motivational interviewing and having really rock-solid outcomes with, with moderate or large effect sizes, right? And... I think it's really important then that if you have somebody that is considering change, motivational interviewing itself is not necessarily a therapy that can help somebody make that change. So if you have somebody that says to you, Christian, I want to get this weight under control. What do you do now? What's RIPE stand for? This is just a mnemonic that might help you approach how you would address a treatment plan with a patient. Uh, it stands for R is restate the patient's desire to change. I is ask the patient for ideas. The ideas is the I. P is ask permission to share some ideas, kind of like what you were saying earlier. And then E is provide a menu of evidence-based options. So maybe not the best mnemonic, but I think really what it boils down to is uh, ask the patient first, you know, what do you think we should do? And then make sure that you actually give them some of your expertise. Don't, don't get all this good motivational interviewing done and then forget to, you know, give them a way to change if they're ready to do it. 
I think that's a great idea, and I think one of the challenges we had on the unit, and we talked about this almost from the beginning. Okay, we have patients that are that are having change talk. Now what? <laughs> right. And right. so I think I, I really like this because what you're saying is, you know, you're talking about making some changes. Um, do you have any ideas how you make that happen? Right. And those all sound like great ideas. Would you like to know a little bit more about X, Y, and Z? You're adding in your expertise, I think, at that point. Mm -hmm. And then, by the way, I'm asking permission when I'm doing that, right, if you notice that. And then after I provide that evidence-based uh, panoply of options, is that the right word? I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, Googling it now. I think it's bunch, a bunch of options. Um, <laughs> um, then make sure that that's made available. Yeah. Right. Now you have a summary here, but I want to skip over the summary for a few minutes. I want to talk about. Um, I, want, I want to talk about something else for a moment. Okay. We had uh, the idea of having some, like a case scenario um, with a thirty-one-year-old female with cocaine use disorder coming in. I think we were going to talk through some of the examples. We can do that again if we're not at the hour mark already. Okay. when we get through some of the other stuff. And I want to make sure that I, the summary comes at the end of our review of the articles that we kind of looked through. Does that sound reasonable? Sure, yeah. Okay. Uh, Panoply? Panoply is an impressive collection of things. Wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a splendid display. A splendid display of treatment options at Panoply. <laughs> or a complete set of arms or a suit of armor. If I you want to get less applicable. Really? <laughs> a complete set of armor. Huh. I didn't know that. Uh, all right. So I, I don't th think that we need to go article by article on this conversation. Yeah, I agree. But I want your impressions regarding the literature on motivational interviewing. So, like you said, there's thousands of articles out there. And... Everyone wants to show that motor, motivational interviewing is this treatment approach that works well. The best thing since sliced bread. Yeah, exactly. And honestly, it doesn't really show that is what we're kind of finding. Yeah. There are, it's pretty rare from the things I looked at to find one that says there's no benefit, but it's usually very modest, if anything. Yeah. And... I guess this kind of made me think, well, are we even promoting something that's worth doing then if, if the evidence isn't even there? Yeah. And my thought process is... Well, can, I, can I have you save that for the very end? Yeah, okay. Because <laughs> I, 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 know, I think I know where you're headed, but I want to talk about this with a little more detail. So we yeah. looked at, uh, without going into all the articles, I think we looked at two articles from um, Cochrane Review, right? One was the Smeds, Smedsland? in 2011 and it was interesting because there is now some really great research that has been done on motivational interviewing and they looked at I think thousands of articles um, and this was for change for substance abuse if I remember right right yeah. in 2011 mm -hmm. so they they actually winnowed this down to 59 articles only out of thousands of articles I think yeah, it's 13,342 participants. 
That, that was how many were left when they got it down to the 59 articles. So yeah. a little over 13,000 people. So now I just want to point out that our best data collection on this topic for substance use disorders comes from 2011. And it essentially is 1,300 people. And the quality of the study is actually pretty good. They, they actually made sure looking at video that fidelity was kept to the, to the motivational interviewing models, right? Mm-hmm. And what they concluded was that it really isn't any better than treatment as usual. I think the most promising was the medium follow-up group. Yeah, the, the long-term uh, follow-up was not even statistically significant. Yeah, yeah I, I think that I, I, I kind of felt all empty inside when I saw that article, right? And this is, and, and I think I've complained about the Cochrane reviews in the past. Um, I, I think that quite often they're setting up conditions that ensure that a, a system failed. Right, and perhaps if we had gone into the data, we would find some nuance to this, such as patients who are using this for cocaine treatment are not as likely to change as women who have uh, alcohol use disorders. Right, and so there might be some differences in in who benefits from this and how they benefit from it. But if you just kind of lump everything together, it's not the the point is it's not a cure all for everybody. Right. And then we looked at also this, uh, I think it's Dorker or Darker article in 2015. Um, and this was about benzodiazepines specifically. And they said, that's nah, difficult to say that motivational interviewing is better than anything else. Right? Again, I kind of had that uh, really empty feeling inside. Now, there were some articles that talked about where they think there's some benefit, right? A couple of them were even review articles. Um, I think, uh, Dave, you mentioned one that you saw that seemed to have de- uh, decent data. What was that one? So the name of the review is Motivational Interviewing for Weight Management Among Women. And it's a meta-analysis and systematic review of randomized control trials. Um, and it's kind of the group that was done, it obviously was among women, but they initially had th- uh, 3,289 references identified and they um, only found 10 intervention arms that met the criteria for a reviewer reviewer tier. And seven of the 10 intervention groups reported significant um, anthropometric changes. Which I understood as weight loss. Yeah. Okay. And then three of the 10 didn't, right? Yeah. Effect size. So that's... So there's small, medium, and large effect size, if I understand, or... Maybe there's different language, and they, I think they came out with a 0.35, which is nearer to the small effect size. I think yeah. moderate starts to come in about around 5. So uh, 3, 5, and 8, something along those lines. That sounds right. Um, we could go on and on. Uh, adolescence, not a lot of benefit. Primary care, um, I had a hard time with this meta-analysis at looked at published and unpublished studies and they how they selected the articles was really unclear most of them were unblinded out of the studies they looked at the ones that they also included in their analysis had a high risk for um, uh, bias in the studies hard to look at that one Um, one of the best studies was that you can actually teach nursing uh, dnp students so doctorate of nurse practitioner you can teach those students to learn motivational interviewing 
and I think we can probably also teach medical students to do motivational interviewing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Remains unclear. Yeah. Um, gambling. Yeah, it, that was not very promising. Uh, yeah, it was such a strange study because what it said was, well, maybe CBT works. It just threw everything together. It made it impossible to understand what we were doing. It said maybe CBT works, maybe motivational interviewing works, maybe node link mapping works, maybe couples therapy works, maybe imaginal desensitization works. I, <laughs> I didn't know what it meant. Um, there's a meta-analysis on antipsychotic uh, per, uh, adherence, maybe some benefit, maybe some not benefit. I think it was two versus three with most of the studies showing no benefit. Homeless populations don't seem to benefit from motiv uh, motivational interviewing in terms of changing um, their substance use patterns, but if you p-hack, maybe uh, it does for alcohol use disorders, right? Um, I mean, it just keeps going on and on. I will say, though, that there were a couple of things that stood out to me in the articles. I want to hear your thoughts. The first one was the neuropsych article. This was Verdejo and Garcia, or Verdejo Garcia, that was the name, 2019. Um, and what they did is they, they looked at this somewhat conceptually different than anybody else had. And it, it gives me the idea that there might be more than one way to tackle substance misuse disorder, or substance use disorders. And that is that you can a, a, attack them on a cognitive control level or a cognitive rehabilitative level. And the idea was that if somebody continues to make, uh, to continues to relapse, right, they're pulled in by the stimuli for relapse, then you might be able to address that either with cognitive control or improving the decision making through something like cognitive remediation. What they tried to do is identify decision making impairment and, and kind of go from there. I thought that it was kind of a, a difficult I think it was too big with too many different uh, used motivational interviewing for this, um, but I, I was intrigued by the direction of that, right? Thinking about relapse in terms of cognitive deficits and how the strategies that we use look at those, those cognitive deficits or those challenges that patients have in kind of a different framework. And then the last article that I saw, and I think this is where we're going to maybe tie back into what you said a few minutes ago, or started to say, and I interrupted you, the last article we saw said that uh, there was an article in 2015, and there were. it seemed like most of the studies we looked at um, were done either in Taiwan, the United States, or Great Britain, England. And this study, I think, Qian article was done in Taiwan, and what they did is looked at something called adherence therapy, and it, unfortunately it was single-blinded, and there were a lot of outcomes, I don't know that they did regression analysis of any sort on the, on the article. And their their outcomes were, uh, the effect size was so magnificent that I had a tough time believing it. But it might fit into my worldview. So uh, you were starting to say a few minutes ago, why do we keep teaching motivational interviewing if the data is so dismal? And I'm going to answer that question. I'm going to have Dave answer that question from his perspective, and then I'll let you answer because I think you did all the work on this, and I want you to have the last word on that topic. Okay. So my idea came back to this. Motivational interviewing is not a treatment. It's a way of helping people be more effective in treatment. So this adherence therapy was a combination of motivational interviewing and CBT. 
And what they saw were changes in insight, changes in med adherence, changes in hospitalization in a positive way, increases in function, changes in PAN score, and those effect sizes were 0.5 to 0.7, which is, again, remarkable. I, I have a lot of concerns about the value of this study because of the limitations of the study, but I think it opens up a great question for what do we do in the future. And so my point is, I believe this is a phenomenal way to interact with patients. And if it's a phenomenal way of interacting with patients, and it helps me, which I think it probably does, be more effective at the primary treatment, then I need to incorporate it in my cognitive behavioral therapy or interpersonal psychotherapy or uh, cognitive rehabilitation of any sort that I'm doing. That's my two cents. That's why I keep it. Now, there's, there's some hopeful data that I'll add to that. And there was one article that we looked at by... Um, by McGill, 2018, and they looked at 13 studies, 16 motivational interviewing conditions, and they said there are language subtypes of uh, talk, the reason for change, the desire for change, the need for change, the ability to change, the commitment to change, and the taking steps to change. And then they talked about three valences, and that is the change talk, I want to do something different, the sustained talk, which is, I don't want to do something different, and the proportion talk, which I think is the mix of the two. And even proportion talk, both sustained talk and proportion talk, seem to have some implications for future change. Whether or not you are able to bring out some sort of change talk or proportion of change talk may matter for change in the future. And perhaps at least using motivational interviewing gives us the ability to be diagnostic in what the patient's uh, prognosis is, even if it doesn't give us a great toehold into uh, hoping that some sort of change happens, right? Dave, your thoughts. Why would we continue motivational interviewing if it might not work? Yeah, I, I kind of feel like it's the answer to a different question. So we've already addressed the fact that it's not implemented necessarily as a therapy, um, but it does give us information in terms of prognostic factors uh, about identifying how likely the patient is to change. Um, and then I also feel like it puts the ball in their court. So it gives the patient kind of control over their treatment outcomes. Um, and in my mind, gives them more self-efficacy in determining how the course of um, their illness or, or pathology goes. They feel like there are steps that I can take that maybe I didn't identify before, or there are barriers that I can identify that um, I possibly didn't identify before that now I know that there's things that I can do that I, I didn't know that I could do before. Um, and so if we apply that kind of broad net to everything in medicine, that is going to encompass a lot of different conditions, some of which are more or less treatable, more difficult or more easily treatable. Um, so I really feel like it also improves the communication between physicians and patients in letting them know that we're on their side, and so improving that therapeutic alliance. So it's, I feel like it's the answer to a different problem. I like that. So every once in a while, I'm <laughs> quite often, uh, all the time, I'm uh, impressed by my students who uh, 
say, you're not even asking the right question. Shut up. Sit down <laughs> over there. And let me explain why this is valuable to you. And I, I actually agree more than you can imagine. I, I, I'm ready to jettison all my theories about why motivational interviewing is appropriate and say patient-centered care is, is the answer. You've, you've watched us do our version of motivational interviewing on the, on the uh, clinicals. Does it differ than what you have seen in some settings on other rotations? I, in a positive way, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> Good. <laughs> I, th- I think more and more we're getting further away from paternalistic medicine as a practice. And I think everybody is guilty at some point of having said, you know, you should uh, consider doing this. Um, I'm you, guilty. Yeah. You've heard me say it occasionally here, right? And if we're not doing it with our patients, we're doing it with spouses, loved ones, um, etc. <laughs> Children, bosses. Children, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Employees. With my cakes that don't rise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think if we if we turn that on its face and point it at ourselves, and if we told ourselves, you know, you should be doing this, you can identify that resistance, especially if you think about a time when someone has said something to you. The first thing you put up is a shield to kind of block maybe your ego or, or whatever it is from that. Um, you dig in your heels. Assault, yeah. You, you did <laughs> dig tug in your heels. <laughs> Pick up the rope. Any other thoughts on that? I like how you've said that. Um, not at the moment. I'll let you think of Okay. I'm sure there will be more. <laughs> so, Christian, you get last word on this because you you brought up the question. I still I, I know that Dave said you're asking the wrong question, but I still think it's an important question, and it's something that you've also thought about quite a bit. I'd like to hear your thought thoughts. Yeah. So, most of these studies are asking, can you use motivational interviewing as a treatment? as opposed to if you as a physician incorporate this into your practice, it doesn't make you a better doctor. And I think it's hard to really get good results on that sort of question. Uh, I'll be Googling that shortly, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) So you guys, you both said kind of what I was thinking to say, but so I should have let you go first is what you're saying. Well, no. That, <laughs> I think you said it beautifully. I don't think so. I think motivational interviewing should be viewed as a way of communicating. It's a framework that can help you make informed decisions about how you're going to interact with your patient. But it's not the end-all, be-all because the patient still has their own autonomy. And I think kind of like Dave was saying, it's important to let patients make their own decisions for their own health. And we have done our job if we give them the options that are there and do our best to encourage them to make the right decisions. But we shouldn't feel bad as providers if outcomes don't match what we want because the patient wasn't willing to do what needed to be done in order for that outcome to happen. Willing to do what we thought needed to be right, done. Right, yeah. 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 
I think it's easy to lose sight of that fact that we think our we think that patient outcome is our job when really it's providing the patients the option to receive the care if they want it. Collaborating with patients to find their outcome. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. I do I do think um I do think that one of the challenges we had was that this was a podcast more about some of the nuts and bolts of motivational interviewing. And I, again, I've had a lot of complaints about Cochrane Reviews in the past. And so I, I do think that some of the meta-analysis we looked at really grouped two big of studies together with too much heterogeneity to be comfortably concluding that that's the right view of, of the world. I think we saw other studies that have, I, I, th- I think, we need to understand the nuance better before we say we're ready to, you know, call it the way Cochrane Review has and just say throw the motivational interviewing out. I think I'm ready to say, okay, wait a minute. Cochrane Review is telling us something a little different in many cases, which is that very brief interventions like telephone communication or a brief recommendation, I think is kind of the way I read it, might be nearly as helpful as motivational interviewing. And, and I think the point I took from the Cochrane reviews was it's not a treatment but it might help us get patients into treatment and maintain treatment and there is something there there's a lot of signal in a lot of papers and a lot of signal in a lot of papers that are good papers and and so I think it's like some of the other things we've read about find the specifics of the details that are meaningful and then hone in on those and figure out, are we getting the right elements in the motivational interviewing? Are we doing it in a way that's helpful? Now, now setting all of that aside, William Miller, uh, Dr. Miller, who developed this with uh, Dr. Rolnick, I listened to him speak at BYU. And uh, this is a man that is uh, deeply spiritual. It's, it's very obvious the way he speaks. By the way, he's uh, not of the Brigham Young University faith, in case anybody that's listening is curious. Uh, but he came and he spoke and he unabashedly in my mind said this is the way God talks to people and if you really want to talk to people in the kindest and most humane way possible this is the way you talk to other people now I, I, I think that that's kind of an awkward way to have a conversation about motivational interviewing with most people but I would say that the highest form of communication that I've seen yet is motivational interviewing because it assumes the best of other people, it doesn't dominate conversations, and it helps create a situation where people can have very open and free communication. I just think it's, I think it's a high way of communicating with people, and I don't know if that makes sense. I know we talk about different languages like High German, right? It's a formal way of communicating with the utmost respect. Um, so I, I think of this as high English, so to speak, <laughs> and I like it very much. To me, it's when I'm using motivational interviewing in all aspects of life, I'm at my best. I'm communicating with other people the way I would want to be communicated with. I want you to tie up the key points of of motivational interviewing and then let's give last thoughts if that's okay. Okay, so can we give a little summary? Yeah, I think so, unless there's anything else that you want to add about the articles that we read through. No, I think you covered them pretty heavily. Um, aside from the fact that that Cochrane uh, article that you mentioned, I found a line that said they found most of the evidence was actually of low quality. And so maybe it really just comes down to we're asking the wrong question, like we're saying, but 
it's just something that seems really difficult to actually study when it should, in my opinion, be used as a way of communicating rather than a than and as a treatment. Than as a treatment. Yeah. I like that a lot. Okay, so some things to keep in mind when you're trying to do some motivational interviewing. I like to think of this in kind of like three categories. First is your mentality. How do you go into this? Remember to be compassionate. Communicate like you would want to be communicated with, like you said. Show empathy. And then also be collaborative with your patients and act like you actually believe in them. Uh, The second thing is kind of what is your goal from this and it's you're you're wanting them to see that uh you know what what's the word we use like uh i evoke the change is that what you're talking about you i'm blanking to... on the word but basically see the disparity between how oh discrepancy discrepancy yeah, yeah there i think that's the word they use but disparity would yeah. be discrepancy yeah. is the word i was looking for yeah so helping them see the discrepancies helping them move through the stages is your goal and helping patients decide for themselves, helping them see how it applies to them specifically and personally. Those are kind of your approach to this. And then the key takeaway is use ORs. That's the technique we're gonna use and that's the open-ended questions. That's the affirmations or acknowledging what they're doing and then reflecting and summarizing. And that's pretty much it. I mean, that's the 30 second rundown of what motivational interviewing is, but I kind of see it as what is your mentality? What is your approach? And then what techniques do you use to do it? And that speaks to something that uh, I think we read at the very beginning, the spiritual, the, not the, the spirit of motivational interviewing. Right? And I think if you look at motivational interviewing closely, you'll see that uh, Dr. Miller has put in a number of those words that have um, sort of re- religious overtones, and I think he does that on purpose. Um, because of the high value he has on how he treats other people. Uh, A couple of things I think are worth adding after this. One, you can use motivational interviewing to do some things that are pretty rotten, right? You can use it to be fairly manipulative. And and the spirit of motivational interviewing is antithetical to that. The second thing I would say is that uh, it helped me get married to my current (laughs) spouse, right? When I talk to my spouse in a motivational interviewing way, not to get her to change anything, but to ask her how her life is and to engage in uh, a reciprocal relationship that has a great deal of meaning for me. This is the way I do it. This is how I talk to the, how I talk to the people that I care about, which should be everybody, right? Should be. Well, shoulds, I gotta watch out for those. But that's what my goal is, is to treat everybody you know, in a way and use motivational interviewing with everybody and treat them in the kindest way possible. And it, it just is, it's a, again, I got married with it. In part, that was one of the things that made it happen, I'm sure of it. Final thoughts. I, do you want the first word on this one so you make sure that your point isn't duplicated? <laughs> <laughs> Usually we give the star of the show the last word, but I, I'm worried about that this time. <laughs> Either way, but sure, I'll go first. Um, I think the final thought I would leave is if you can incorporate this into your practice, you will have ensured that you are doing the best you can to offer patients 
an option for change and at the same time preserving relationships with them, which is another outcome that we want to see. It's not, uh, and that sort of thing isn't evaluated in these studies that we're looking at, right? I don't think so, no. I don't think it evaluates how well, so, so we, I think we do know that patient-physician encounters can be evaluated a lot of way. you can, ways. You can be a terrible doctor, but your bedside manner really has more to say about how your patient outcomes are, adherence to the treatment, and so forth, than anything else, right? Mm -hmm. Patients are more satisfied by doctors that are good to them. And I think that this is a way to show the respect that patients deserve. I like that. Collaborative care model. Sort of like Dave was saying earlier. And you wanted to say, but he got the first word. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, uh, final thoughts? Um, so I was just looking into what are the most common patient complaints. And um, some of those things are out of our control as physicians, scheduling difficulties. Um, but the, one of the most commonly cited ones and one that I've personally heard is not feeling heard um, by their physician or other members of the medical staff. And then another one is not being offered alternatives. And I feel like motivational interviewing does an exceptionally effective job at addressing both of those, especially making the patient feel heard and then not feeling like you're rushing to find the solution so much for as just being a great resource for solutions should the patient be open to um, having those. And then also just being non-judgmental I feel like is so important for your patients because um, the last thing a lot of your patients want is to feel like their doctor's judging them. You know, they just want to have somebody that's on their team and this just does such a great job. Um, and outside of a you know clinical spectrum, I feel like this is just a great way to make someone else in your life feel heard, and that you really value them and, and you're interested in kind of how they think, and you can't really put a uh, a price on that. So it, it must work if uh, Stephanie, right? Yeah, Stephanie <laughs> with me. We need to publish a case study, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> How Dr. Roundy was lucky enough to get married. Um, I, I, I want to just add one thought to what you're saying, and that is active listening. We talk about that a lot, but open-ended questions with follow-up and reflection, um, summaries, right? That is, in large part, listening and listening with yeah, kind of that attitude around it of caring about our patients. I, like that a, a great deal, and uh, you know some of the comments that you're making about timeliness. I just wanted to have one more comment on that. I I felt like everybody said, oh, you can get so much more done with motivational interviewing than you can if you just tell patients what to do. I I I'm unconvinced of that, and partially convinced of that. Um, <laughs> I do think that if you get in a tug of war with patients it's really easy to get behind in your schedule because you're worried about leaving in the middle of a tug of war, right? And you probably, I think you guys have been on your primary care rotations, and my guess is there was a fair chance that no matter how good your doctor was, every once in a while he still got in a tug of war, right? And it slowed everything down, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think motivational interviewing avoids that tug of war, and I also think that depending on how much you practice motivational interviewing, 
it can become uh, a faster way of getting to solutions, right? And opening up to multiple options, I think, or, or even at least the option that the, I, th I think a lot of patients come in with, here's what I want. And as long as it's within the panoply of, <laughs> uh, treatments, then I think it's very reasonable, right? Um, with a good informed consent about that choice. So, so I, I think that it, if you want to make sure that motivational interviewing doesn't eat away all your time, you have to practice so that you get good enough to do it. And it can be a technique that I think is nearly comparable in terms of time. Uh, but it requires practice. And, and generally speaking, it requires somebody telling you you're not doing it right along the way to get there. So if you guys want to come back and have a fourth year rotation where you do the interviews instead of me and I sit back and type notes and we have somebody grading every question you ask or every statement you make, we can do that. Awesome. <laughs> it, it is and it isn't. <laughs> uh, my final thought is this. You guys covered it in a great way. Uh, even though we've talked about the shortcomings of motivational interviewing, I'm unconvinced that we have a good overview of the relative benefits and risks in very specific settings. I think we have some evidence that um, motivational interviewing is not necessarily a treatment. And I think really uh, the follow-up on this will be a podcast that looks at how does motivational interviewing affect other metrics, even if it doesn't mean that people stop using substances sooner. Does it mean that the, that patients stay engaged better with their physician? You can treat, um, uh, systemic infections quicker from I, during IV drug use, right? Does it mean that you have patients who uh, cut down? I think there's at least some data for cutting down at the effect size of, of these treatments so far. When you group them all together, it's easy to hide the value in specific settings. So I think we can also look and see what you know, specific value are at some point. In any case, I really, really liked your initial plan, which was let's talk about the key elements right? Let's talk about how to talk to people. And I think you did a wonderful job of that. So thank you very much for a wonderful podcast. Good luck on you guys's, uh, you gents next rotation. Where do you go from here? Ear, nose and throat surgery. Oh man. ENT docs are happy docs. So Dave, I know that you're thinking about psychiatry and if you go to yeah. ENT after this, I understand actually. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of things I understand. And, well, and, and part of the reason why I went with ENT surgery is my long history of having dealt with ENT and ENT surgeons with rare medical disorders. So. Are you going to be able to, by the way, you, what is it called again? The Dracula syndrome? Uh, <laughs> that would probably be a catchier name. It's named Eagle syndrome after the Dr. Eagle who first identified it. And it's calcification of? The stylohyoid ligament or just elongation of the styloid process. And it can cause? <laughs> it can cause an impingement of the vasculature, uh, particularly the bifurcation of the uh, carotid artery as it becomes the external and internal carotid arteries. And in worst case, can cause dissection with cutting, right? Uh, it, according to the literature that I've read, there are elderly individuals who have dissected their carotid arteries with rotating their head. In my case, uh, amaurosis fugax, um, dizziness, tachycardia, etc., painful swallowing, odynophagia. 
Just a few symptoms. <laughs> and difficulty identifying. I identified people. 20 symptoms in myself. I used to keep a log of it. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it strange what happens when you don't get blood to your brain? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like I kind of need it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you get to rotate with the physician that uh, finally helped you out with that? Um, no, he is not one of our established preceptors, oh. so, unfortunately. Do you want to do a shout-out to him? Because I think you think quite highly of him. Yeah, if anybody is looking for a great ENT surgeon, Pramod Sharma, he practices in, in Draper in Salt Lake. This is a free plug. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's there's no money generated from these podcasts, so it have to be a free plug. And uh, where are you headed next, Christian? Uh, orthopedic trauma surgery. So... Yeah. I know you've got family practice on your mind, but man, you, you remind me of a lot of orthopedic, uh, prospective orthopedic surgeons that come through. Long, Hopefully. tall, and handsome. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that weird how they're all just like these beautiful guys, right? I mean, handsome guys, I mean. Just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, I think that's kind of the prototype, isn't it? Yeah. Gentlemen, again, thank you so much. And on that note, team out. Team, team out. out.